Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Vi skulle i denne uge have talt med den indiske forfatter og kulturkritiker Pankaj Mishra. Det har vi lovet jer, og jeg kan love jer, at vi kommer til at tale med Pankaj. Han har desværre måtte aflyse i den her uge, og vi har lavet en ny aftale i april, så ham vender vi tilbage til. I stedet har jeg haft mulighed for at tale med den kanadiske historiker Quinn Bodian, som har skrevet en helt fantastisk bog om globaliseringen og nyliberalismen. Quinn var stærkt venstreorienteret som ung. Han var aktivistisk og deltog i forskellige demonstrationer imod Irakkrigen og imod globalisering og imod frihandelsaftaler. Men på et tidspunkt så blev han nysgerrig på, hvordan det egentlig kunne være, at de her nyliberalistiske idéer var blevet så stærke. Hvor kom de fra? Hvem var det, der havde fundet ud af, at man skulle have nogle frihandelsaftaler, der stod over alle mulige andre former for politik? Hvem var det, der havde fundet ud af, at markedet skulle være indhegnet af nogle bestemte love, der satte nogle bestemte rettigheder over for eksempel arbejdstagerrettigheder? Det satte han sig ned og fandt ud af og skrev den helt fantastiske bog Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Good evening to our viewers here in Denmark. Thank you for being with us and especially good afternoon to you, Quinn Slobodian in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you so very much for taking your time. Happy to be here, yeah. Han forklarer i den her samtale, hvordan nyliberalismen blev så stærk, men han forklarer også, hvordan det kan være, at den er kommet i krise i dag, og hvad Venstrefløjen skal gøre for at overkomme dem. Så vi starter med nyliberalismen, men vi kommer faktisk videre, ligesom i historien. God fornøjelse. You've written an absolutely wonderful book, Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, that came out, I think, in 2018. And I want to recommend for everyone to read the book. And I hope we'll find a Danish translator and put it out in, in Danish. Because when I look back at this newspaper, we've been writing the word neoliberalism a lot of times over the years. And we've always taken for granted that our readers knew what it meant and that we ourselves knew what it meant. But, but when I see the meanings that we've employed, It's been all the way from Foucauldian style of, of, of governance to a way of saying that they believe in free markets and no government interference. They have this, this love for jungle law. Very often we've used it in a negative sense. I, I, should, I should say that. Uh, so I wouldn't have loved us to read your book 10 years ago because arguably it's a very, very important concept and a very strong idea. But our, our conception of this concept has been quite vague and often contradictory. Uh, so how should we, in your view, understand the concept of neoliberalism? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there's not necessarily a requirement for us to all settle on one definition, but I think it is helpful to be aware and conscious of the different ways it is used. So it seems to me that um, it's more or less used in sort of three different ways. I mean, we use it to define a kind of historical epoch, right? We talk about the kind of neoliberal era from the late 1970s, early 1980s to the present question mark, 2016 question mark. We also use it to describe a certain mentality or a way of interacting with the world in which we see ourselves as kind of bundles of assets that need to be maximized and leveraged and symbolically um, capitalized on. This is the notion of the entrepreneur of the self 
And then we use it more like the way I do in my book, which is to say it is a kind of a discrete intellectual movement of people who got together in the 1930s, coined the term neoliberal to describe themselves as a kind of middle road, as they saw it, between laissez-faire capitalism, sort of stateless capitalism on the one hand, and then statist forms of socialism and fascism on the other. And have ever since their 1930s up to the present, been talking about different fixes that capitalism might need to survive. So I think that it's fine to use the word in diverse ways. And the last thing I want to become is the kind of like neoliberalism cop that goes out and like gives people tickets for using it the wrong way. But I think that it is good to, you know, remain mindful that, that the term can produce more confusion than clarity if we don't use some kind of precision as our, as we uh, deploy it. And, and I, I think also that some, especially on the left, that we have some misconceptions of, of the adversary or, or the enemy that, that all economists are neoliberalists or mm. that neoliberalism is a kind of economism or that, that the, the criticism, I, I think, will be qualified by actually acknowledging what kind of neoliberalism gained influence and became very powerful. It's a, it's a, and I think anyone who read Friedrich Hayek knows that 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 he was not in, in he was not an economist in the sense that everything should be understood as ciphers of of of, of economists. So so mm-hmm. that, but it's also a, a a great point in your book. You really emphasize that that there are limits to economy in in uh, in the neoliberal sense. Why is that so important? Well, I mean, if you if you reconstruct the narrative historically, which is kind of what I do in the book, it's there's a very meaningful turning point in the 1930s, which is an important decade for the discipline of economics, because among other things, it's the decade when people first start creating national income accounts. So what we now know of as GDP is effectively created for the first time in the 1930s. So the idea that the economy is a kind of statistical entity that you can have an overview of and that you could potentially intervene in and adjust and tweak and engineer to produce different outcomes is very much a 1930s invention. And the people that I write about in my book, some of whom are quite famous, including Friedrich Hayek, were you know alive and working at the time and observing this. And it was actually deeply disturbing for them that Um, a new conception was arising whereby the economy was something that could be fine-tuned and tweaked because they thought that this was self-evidently going to become something that the socialists made use of. And indeed, Keynesianism itself as a kind of way of of, uh, governing economics is premised on this idea. You can count an economy, you can get an overview of it, and you can make adaptations into it. Um, And often for reasons of better redistribution, stability, more social equality and so on. So it was in the 1930s that that these sort of famous neoliberals had a kind of turn away from numbers and turn away from statistics. Um, Milton Friedman himself, even though he worked on statistics, also had a kind of disenchantment with the use of mathematics and the use of formulas in in economics because they thought that these were the, the tools of socialists. So if you wanted to design an economy, you needed to work from first principles about economic freedom, about reciprocity, free trade, the priority of the rights of property owners over um, democratically elected governments. So neoliberalism, as I describe it in the book, and perhaps the way that it's been most influential, has been as a form of statecraft and law 
more than as a kind of genre of economics, because the discipline of economics itself is relatively untouched from the insights of people like Hayek and Friedman. In fact, these people are not enormously influential in average university economics department. They're more influential in the world of think tanks, policy influence, and the more kind of overtly politically engaged wing of, of the world like the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation. I think something that's always very difficult, and we, we do that here in the newspaper, and I'm, I studied literature and philosophy as well, is to is to really describe how ideas become powerful, how they, you know, establishing the connection between the world of ideas and the world of politics. And you write in your book that the road to the WTO was a twisting one of diplomacy, political economy and politics. But there was also a sense of animating ideas behind the enterprise itself. Mm -hmm. How do you see this connection between the development of ideas and then the realm of of politics and policy and global institutions? I know that's a very difficult question. Well, it's kind of the question, right? I mean, if you work on this stuff, then that is the methodological problem that you're constantly confronted with. So it's 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 not one that's avoidable. And so it's, it's kind of the important question to take um, head on. I think that the, the way that people have described the practice of neoliberal intellectuals as kind of influence peddlers is um, most often to borrow from the insight of Friedman himself. So Friedman put it in a way that many people have quoted that is sort of um, so pithy and wonderful that it's impossible not to quote it yourself, which is just that the role of economists like himself and neoliberal intellectuals is to make sure that there are ideas around. So in moments of crisis, they can be effectively put into the hands of the powerful and then rolled out. So it's not that you have yourself produce the conjuncture or been able to somehow magically align all of the world's political forces to aim at your own desired outcome. But when crises do happen, then you are there with a kind of a playbook, right? And, and the history of neoliberalism in action is filled with examples of this. I mean, one of my favorite examples is actually the Heritage Foundation itself, which was founded by someone named Edward Foilner, Edwin Foilner, who is a, um, Montpellier and Society member, sort of uh, very active for decades. And the Heritage Foundation's practice is that when a new Republican administration enters office, they just hand them a thousand page book called A Mandate for Leadership <laughs> that just gives them suggestions for every possible policy field that they could have. And then as the Congress comes into session, every time a new policy item comes on the agenda, many of which your average senator or congressperson has no particular knowledge of or insight into, they circulate this one page front and back backgrounder on any given issue. So you show up, you know, you're a Republican, you show up at your office in the morning, you look at your desk and you say, well, there's this thing we need to vote on. And now I have this wonderful piece of paper that tells me how voting yes rather than no is going to, you know, protect economic freedom and liberty. So you've just made, they've just made your life a lot easier. So there's many sort of equivalent examples to this where, you know, the, the skill and the genius of being a good policy entrepreneur is sort of finding the right moment of intervention. It's rarely the ability to kind of orchestrate world economic crises. I don't think anyone, you know, neoliberal is, is capable of that, but they are, you know, skilled enough to see when there's moments of opportunity and then to, you know, step in and influence people at the right moment. And in fact, 
that is one thing that certainly the left should take more sort of cues from is sort of seek those moments of vulnerability, moments of openness and figure out ways to, you know, insert um, plans in the hands of those who are in a position to take action. It's very fascinating reading your book to see how these are intellectuals. They're, they are, I don't know if it's the right thing to call them idealists, but they're definitely, they definitely want to create a better world and they have these concepts of, of which way should the world de develop. And you have these intellectuals meeting in small groups and ending up influencing policy and institutions like the WTO, but I think also the European Union is, is, is uh, to a certain extent influenced mm -hmm. by them. But it seems to me also that they get their strength from the fact that they're actually dealing with some basic problems of the 20th century, the way you balance democracy and capitalism, finding compromise between the two. And I think maybe it's Marxism, Keynesianism, and neoliberalism that does that, but that, that's pretty much it, it isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I would phrase it less seeking to create a better world and more that their intention is to prevent the arrival of a worse world. Yes. <laughs> so, so this is really kind of gets to something essential about their worldview, which is they are, they're desiring to, to sort of build and, and engineer sort of prophylactics and safeguards, right? They, they have in general, a pretty pessimistic view of human nature. They do believe that people have a tendency towards, you know, acquisitiveness, selfishness, conflict if their own desires are thwarted. And so the challenge of, uh, you know, mass government is how to constrain the will of the people adequately that the whole order is not disrupted while still giving them enough of a sense of autonomy that they don't, you know, revolt in anger that their free will is being infringed on, right? So this, I mean, it, it, in a way is the balance of liberalism, not just neoliberalism. Um, and I think some of the categories that they introduce help to reframe a lot of these problems that have indeed been consistent across the 20th century into the 21st, but that we don't often think about in, the, in their terms. So, you know, when asked to describe the 20th century, someone might say, well, it was a period of, you know, colonialism, and then there were two world wars and a cold war, and then, then globalization beginning in the 90s or something. And that might be true as far as it goes. But another way to describe the modern era is that it's been an effort to balance between these two spheres of, on the one hand, property or dominium, as they call it, using a category from Roman law. And on the other hand, the principle of sovereignty in the world of states using what they call imperium, using another category from Roman law. I mean, in a way, that's a more pithy description of the 20th century because each one of those moments, wars, cold wars, globalizations have always um, been defined by efforts to kind of crack this riddle of what the neoliberals called the world economic constitution that can allow these two principles of government and property to coexist without one overruling uh, the other and thereby kind of disrupting the entire mechanism. So. In that sense, they are idealist, I think, in the sense that they see themselves as called to this necessary task, which if no one takes up, um, will lead to sort of worldwide devastation. I mean, they, they are self-dramatizing enough to see themselves that way, right? Um, and the enemy is always what they call, Mises called in 1927, the collectivizers, right? The 
Hayek has a wonderful kind of folk evolutionary psychology that he relies on, whereby we all started out kind of on the savanna, on the grasslands, uh, you know, in the Neolithic period or whatever. And because we were used to these small group tribal situations, um, we had this idea of sort of decommodified sharing solidarity, but it's actually just like a anachronistic memory of our old caveman history. It's that lives on like a ghost in our DNA, right? And so socialism is just the reactivation of this old caveman ethics. And it's impossible to suppress. It will always surge up. He calls it the atavism of social justice. And in a way, the task of the liberal, the task of the modern rationalist is to figure out forms of government whereby, you know, caveman ethics won't swamp the kind of um, attention to complexity that is necessary to maintain uh, an interdependent um, extended order of the kind that the global economy um, requires. It's a fair and balanced book. You're definitely not, it's not neoliberalism bashing at all. In the end, you get the sense that you're critical of the depoliticization and there, there are things, but, but, but you, I get the feeling that you curiously really try to understand and reconstruct. So we get a sense of this, this movement and, and how these ideas develop. So I, I, I suspect you're not a neoliberalist yourself or wouldn't call yourself that. Yeah, yeah. What, what surprised you the most about neoliberalism when you were researching it? Um, I think that I had a very, I guess I had a kind of like a class reductive idea of what neoliberalism was and therefore what neoliberal intellectuals were when I started. I think that in my mind, I assumed that these characters, Hayek, Rupka, Haberler, and so on, were kind of just apologists for the status quo, kind of flunkies for the wealthy. You know, they were just kind of yeah. useful idiots for the maintenance of the, of you know, vast income inequalities. And they have definitely been useful to the wealthy in some of those ways, right? Um, people who are less articulate than Hayek have probably profited from being able to use Hayek's words to defend what for them is probably just the you know the the luxury of having being able to keep as much money of their money as possible um, and to avoid taxes and so on. Um, but Hayek in particular ended up being this this completely transfixing, enchanting kind of a intellectual that I in a way that I had not expected. And it really has to do with his uh, embrace of what many 20th century intellectuals embrace, which is the idea of, of system thinking and complexity theory which from the mid 1950s led him to think of the economy as not a kind of singular entity, but just one system among many, right? So he saw the world of exchange, bartering and trucking and commodified uh, buying and selling as just one intermediate scale of system building, which if you went down in scales would become something like the neurons in your brain. And if you went up, it would become the stars of the galaxy, right? Um, and for me, that was, uh, you know, a quasi kind of mystical approach to what I thought had been a pretty, um, you know, retrograde defense of class privilege. So actually, this guy is like the Sufi mystic of the economics departments, right? Like no one actually takes Hayek seriously in economics departments, because look at him, he's just a complete tripper, like he's a philosopher. Um, and that made me think, though, oh, this challenge is a bit different than what I had expected. It's not just 
a question of unmasking the naked class interests of neoliberal intellectuals and their backers, but it's a harder task, which is how can leftists like myself um, counter this level of um, economic and political philosophy with one of our own, right? Since we can't just respond to reductive class privilege with our own demand for class redistribution, that probably is not intellectually compelling enough. <laughs> then, then what is it exactly? You know, well, who is our counter Hayek? Who can stand next to this, this sort of literally sort of universe embracing philosophy of what the good life should look like? What was it like for you? Uh, you must have finished the book in 2016 or 17. Uh, just and at that time, I imagine that globalization was still like the iron law of world economy. And, and you know, all governments were just justifying whatever they were doing by world competition, globalization. These are laws that we must obey. And, you know, even a fairly strong sovereign state like Denmark, our schools would be would be reformed as regards to how we could deal with globalization. It was right. just a non-negotiable. And I we've been writing like tons of articles about it. And after the financial crisis, we were saying, well, the end of neoliberalism, the end of market fundamentalism. And I remember right. they wrote it in the Financial Times and we were cheering, now is our time. But then after you finished your book, then came Trump, then came Brexit, no, Brexit came first and then came Trump. And then this entire renegotiation of international trade agreements. What was that like for you? It, yeah, it was mind bending. I mean, the way it actually worked was um, I had basically finished the book by June of 2016. <laughs> um, my son was born at the beginning of the month and then Brexit happened a week later. And, and if you if you have kids, you know what the first six months yes. of having a child is like. So basically the world just evaporated into, you know, just a whirl of wet diapers for six months. And then I came up for air in January thinking, oh, I'll put my last finishing touches on my book and send it off to the press. And I realized that I thought I had written the history of the present, but I'd actually now written inadvertently a history of the recent past that the moment that I was describing, which when I wrote the book, I assumed was ongoing, as you say, this naturalization of world economic competition, this quasi like inevitability of the pressures of competition and just getting into where you can according to what the foreign investment class, you know, forces you into. This now was at least rhetorically completely different. And we were in this, we were in this moment now by November 2016, where the new wave was about sovereignism, um, you know, protectionism, the return of industry, the the blaming of corporations for their complicity with the politicians who helped lead to these inequalities and waves of deindustrialization. And so, so the whole conversation had changed. And I could only, I only sort of had the capacity to send a kind of signal about that at the very end of the book to sort of say like and now with <laughs> the triumph of brexit and trump like who knows what happens next like hit sand like this thing's got to get published at some point um but for sure since then it's just been a process of asking two questions you know to what extent have things really changed you know is this is this a a foundational transformation or only an apparent one And how permanent is it? Because like you, I you know, remember vividly 
this period after the 2008 financial crisis when like the master was back and Keynesianism was the new order of the day and no one believed in neoliberalism anymore. And that really lasted about what, you know, 16 months or something. I mean, it was, it was an interregnum. Um, so my first reaction to 2016 was, was a deep skepticism of the idea that actually everything had changed. And the things that I wrote for, you know, like a year and a half writing about Brexit, alternative for Germany, Germany, Trump himself and his trade policy was to actually kind of caution against seeing these things as somehow 180 degree turns from the neoliberal rationality that had preceded them. I actually think that, um, and it's now obvious that that Brexit was actually not about turning inward somehow. It was was indeed the sort of pivot towards global Britain, whatever that means. But it was actually in some ways, until COVID, an acceleration of kind of capitalist style competition and not um, a turn away from it. Something like AFD in Germany, same thing, founded by neoliberal economists. Um, and even as it took on more and more weight of xenophobia and anti-migrant sentiment, it still sort of kept this core of, you know, more competition, not less. And even Trump's trade policy is muscularly, you know, aggressive as it was, was still for some of his trade officials in the interest of opening up markets and protecting American-led globalization than it was about autarky or you know self-sufficiency or turning inward. So I think since COVID, however, there's been a kind of doubling on of the pressure of what you would call the kind of like re-territorialization of economy, where ever more skepticism about global supply chains, ever more attention to the need for resilience and self-sufficiency. And so now, you know, when you add the 2016 rupture to the 2020 rupture, it starts to feel like something more foundational, I think, has shifted in a way that hadn't actually in 2016, even though superficially many people thought it had. If you look at the European Union, I think it, and it's very, it's very convincing to see the case how the neoliberals actually solved the problem for, for the European Union. Uh, and they suggested something that was compatible with constrained democracy, mm -hmm. like Jan Werner Miller has written. And, and they've, it's very interesting because, you know, the Competition Commissioner, she's Danish. She's Margrethe Vestager. Okay, and, right, of course, yeah. And, and she's like a hero for fighting big tech. And in your book, it says, well, the Competition Commissioner is kind of a, a neoliberal chief. But I think when you see what they've been saying is all the time, fair and level playing field, fair and level playing field. EU, the European Union is the agent of, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. a fair, fair level playing field and fair, fair competition. And they've actually changed a lot, I think, when they're talking about the strategic autonomy, when they're talking of bringing home the supply chains, when they're talking about diversifying supply chains. Now they're even, you know, with the Commissioner Chair Breton speaking about European champions, industrial. Mm -hmm policies. And 10 years ago, speaking of protectionism in Europe was like speaking about racism, you know, nationalism. It was, it was, you know, and now they're developing some sort of progressive protectionism. Isn't that a real shift at the core of the European Union? That I completely agree with you. And I think that's what I think it has taken a few years to actually um, catch on. And I think that the missing factor there is not 
Trump or Brexit or you know the left behinds of globalization, but the missing variable in what we've said so far is China, right? I mean, I think that what has changed is a collective on the part of EU and America and Canada realization of the reality of Chinese ascendancy and the need for a structural response doesn't look the same as the way that China was being dealt with from you know the 90s up through its joining the WTO in 2001 and beyond. So I think I read the new attention to national champions protecting infrastructure and so on as about a counter movement to China. The skepticism about the WTO as a forum within which American interests can be protected is now, of course, joined by effectively the EU and, and this new head in the, in the WTO is kind of extraordinary for almost expressing doubt about the very organization that she is now the head of. And this is all about the need to contain China, I think. So I think that that has, be, has the real spur to a changing consensus in the kind of governing economic rationality, paired with, of course, the new rise to the level of sort of globalist consensus of the need to immediately uh, respond to climate change in a more urgent way than, than had been before, which I think is what brings me to a point that I think is also related to something that I have thought through or realized since publishing the book is, or that a question that I continue to ask myself in a way that I also would like the left to be more explicit about asking themselves mm -hmm. too, which is, you know, it's it was easy to be critical of supranational authority um, in the era of neoliberalism, let's say, when the mandate and prerogative of those supranational institutions was primarily, you know, based on access to markets, um, competition between, between labor markets and between product markets and so on. But what if the supranational authority, what if the European Court of Justice, previously used mostly for opening markets, is now used for the interests of decarbonization? Do we still hate it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if so, isn't that a problem? <laughs> um, so, but I think this is something that, that it's kind of a sticking point right now amongst leftists is whether or not it's possible to imagine a kind of a green globalism or a green supranationalism that, that we, you know, who like to think of ourselves as more connected to oh, social movements than Genevan international organizations might be able to kind of support, not just live with, but also actively support, right? Because I think this is the, this is the pivot that's happened between the end of the, the sort of death of the Corbyn and Sanders projects in the late 2019, early 2020, the real energy of 2020 politically in America anyway, was the George Floyd protests, which were very different than these sort of left populist statist projects in the sense that they were driven by genuinely marginalized people, often very anti-statist, quasi-libertarian. I mean, the demand to defund the police is something that many people on the libertarian right we're happy to go along with. Um, so now the sort of orphans of the Corbyn and Sanders movement are now trying to figure out where they go next. Now that everyone from the Goldman Sachs CEO to Klaus Schwab is like climate change activist, is it still cool to be a climate change activist? 
you know, like, is, have they sort of co-opted and defanged the most important movement of the day? And does that make sense, given the fact that there are some of the people with the most leverage to actually make these policies stick? So I think that that gray zone of between, uh, you know, agitation and co-optation is like also a, a gray zone of scale between the nation and supranational institutions that um, leftists and progressives find themselves currently kind of disorientedly afloat inside of. And I think that's one thing that I would say was also a discovery from the book was not just we need our own kind of quasi-mystical Hayek type figures, but we also need a robust um, understanding of our normative vision of how nationalism and supranationalism should interact with one another and whether or not sovereignty is the last word um, or if that is something we can see as being overruled by more important um, priorities. And in the, in the era of the Eurozone crisis, for example, it was very easy to be a sort of a sovereigntist while also being a leftist, while also being a critic of supranational power. And people like Perry Anderson, Wolfgang Strake were good examples of this. But now that the EU itself has started to change, um, arguably in some small ways, the position of being critical of the EU begins to more and more just look like being a rearguard nationalist and sovereigntist in a way that I think should be uncomfortable for people who actually want to see change happening in the world. That's that's a very interesting. We've been talking about that a lot here at the newspaper because, you know, it was so easy to be against the trade agreements when we could say they were just neoliberal policies. Right. And, and, and they were so easy to be against all inter, uh, supranational institutions and the Washington consensus. But now, you know, we cannot deal with climate change alone. We need some kind of commitment from China, from India, from the U.S. at the same time. I mean, if we do everything we can, the U.S. do everything they can or you can, and China doesn't, you know, th then, yeah. then we're screwed. So we actually need to see a vision of leftist global trade agreement. Yeah. That's kind of, and people are becoming more and more skeptical of China, which is to a certain extent good that you mm -hmm. realize what are the compromises here between democracy and, and capitalism. But it also makes everyone suspicious about agreements with China, deals with China and, and global institutions. So I think that is definitely a huge problem for the left now. How do you influence these institutions? Because I think we know for sure that they're not going to be new and stronger institutions. We're not in a world of building institutions. We're in a world of very strong normative movements trying to influence institutions, not in a world of building institutions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, thinking about the sort of 20-year arc of the of the story I was telling in the book, I mean, I mentioned in the afterward that that I sort of it's been a long stewing project that came about kind of as, as, as out of my own sense of regret of not going to the anti-WTO protests in <laughs> Seattle in, um, in 1999. And now I think this, it's a real puzzle of the kind, is another way of describing the puzzle you're, you're explaining there, which is the kind of people who are inspired by the tradition of alter globalization. Yeah now have to figure out what kind of arrangement they might be able to make with their former worst enemies um, in order to uh, address, you know, existential problems of the planet, right? So instead of just being against the Washington consensus, WTO, IMF, World Bank, these are all horrible, we'll make big puppets of them and go and try to humiliate them in the streets of any given city. 
Now the question is, if they're willing to give a little on the things we see as most important, where are we allowed, willing to give in order to kind of meet them or would be to do so to abandon all legitimacy and basically doom ourselves as just like, you know, the, the, again, the useful idiots and lackeys of, of global elites. And the, the spin in the narrative now since the election of Biden has been very striking, whereby the, the elites now, as the term circulates, especially in the right wing kind of media ecosystem, is seen as, you know, the, that of like woke capitalists meets climate change activists meets, you know, open borders advocates. So the, the creation of a new kind of blob of associations on the part of these angry, often online right wing communities um, is, I think, going to be a real obstacle in kind of building grassroots support and legitimacy, because I think that knee-jerk anti-elitism is also not just a quality of the right and many people who see themselves as the descendants of the new social movements of the 1970s, whether it's the peace movement or the vegetarian movement or the feminist movement are also very skeptical of elites for very good reason. And I think we've seen a preview in the opposition to, to vaccination and to the COVID measures altogether of the kind of peculiar left-right uh, grassroots alliances that can emerge in opposition to any kind of ameliorative change that's being carried out by, you know, people who are, are, are seen as belonging to a kind of unelected class that exists beyond the space of the community or the nation. So I think it makes sense that, that people on the left are so cautious and tiptoeing so much around how much they want to lend the weight of their own social movements to the suddenly overnight, you know, climate conscious CEOs. Um, I think they're right to, to, to step carefully, but just resistance and denial might of, of any possible cooperation might not be sort of workable in the medium run. But I've been very, uh, I've been impressed by the power that Thomas Piketty's ideas have become. They, they've gotten a lot of, you know, he came out with this very, very long book And, mm -hmm. and, and I think after the financial crisis, there were no strong leftist ideas. There were no what actually to do. It was just negative against neoliberalism and then mm -hmm. some old Keynesianism. But I've been impressed by the way he's introduced the thought of a wealth tax. And now you see it, even the, the, the German social democrats. And you had uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders championing them. And, and Biden is flirting a little with 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 a wealth tech. And I think there's a normative figure in the core of PGT, which is strong, which mm -hmm. is that the basic premise of, of bourgeois society is liberty, egality, and fraternity. And liberalism has not delivered on that. Liberalism mm -hmm. has not delivered on that. So you must rethink property. You must rethink who owns what. You must rethink distribution, not in order to make another society, but in order to make our own societies live up to the promises. And, and this kind of socialism, a socialism that says we can deliver on the liberal ideas, I'm quite optimistic about it. I think it can it can appeal to, to global institution and young movements at the same time. But, mm -hmm. but I'm always very optimistic. Well, what, how do you see the potential for, for this? Yeah, 
gain of strength. I mean, in so, insofar as any good kind of counter movement requires a good enemy, I think that <laughs> I think that the um, I mean, just sort of almost by definition, the um, the China example has become effective an effective enemy for a kind of for a a re-territorializing quasi-protectionist um, new settlement, especially within the EU and, and the United States. It's very striking that that Biden is in no rush to remove all of the tariffs that have been put on China. <laughs> so, so China is a useful way to sort of re-politicize, as you said, this now truly defunct free trade consensus. Um, the other one, this and this is a response to what you're saying now that I think is a viable enemy is the tax haven yes. and the kind of tax refugee. I think the fact that the OECD is now moving forward with a genuine kind of way of, of um, exercising global tax oversight with American support now is quite significant, uh, potentially. I won't make any sort of firm predictions, but I think the kind of low tax we accept, you know, tax havens look the other way thing is one of the places where, where elite consensus has also kind of shifted. And you can see it if you, you know, if you read the pages of Financial Times, it's the best way yes. to kind of take the pulse of, you know, what kind of reforms are acceptable to those who are also, you know, doing quite well according to the existing status quo. And things like that, cracking down on tax evasion and, and increasing rather than decreasing corporate tax is something that has been part of now the UK budget that was just announced last week, which is definitely a move in a, in a different direction than what we've been seeing over the last couple of decades when the assumption is all you're trying to do is get your tax down so it's low enough to compete with, you know, Mauritius or Bermuda or whatever other kind of bizarre, you know, collective derangement was possessing policymakers for a while there. But so those are there. Could they build grassroots support? I mean, I had a very interesting experience speaking to a class of law students at the University of Chicago not too long ago on Zoom, of course. And afterwards, one of the students wrote me and said, hey, I'm interested in being involved in what you mentioned about the OECD, you know, cracking down on tax havens. What organizations are any organizations on campus or anything I could be involved with? <laughs> and I had this horrible realization that I had no suggestions, right? I know that there, you know, there's the Tax Justice Network in the UK. Attack, of course, continues to exist in different countries built on tax issues in a way. Um, but that was kind of an appalling moment of realizing the vacuum of more civil society level um, support networks for these global, incredibly important issues of economic globalization. So that is just, I think, an infrastructure just waiting to be built. And I think there's a generation of basically, you know, angry and disenfranchised and economically hopeless young people that are like willing, will be willing candidates for something like this if the right arrangements sort of begin to emerge. Because the other thing I wanted to mention is there was in fact another political imaginary that came out of the post-financial crisis era, which is that of the Occupy movement yes. and the, you know, the movement of the squares in, the, in, in Europe and beyond. And that cashed out as the emergence of these digital parties, which had been incredibly influential, right? I mean, Five Star began as just this online platform and then was the biggest party in Italy um, recently. So there is, yes, that kind of rebooted green globalism, like make the UN great again or whatever. <laughs> but, there, but there is also this kind of 
you know, digitally mediated sort of anarchistic mentality that in a more kind of organic and decentralized way seeks to come up with new forms of pressure that maybe had not been thought of before. And I think that there's no chance for only one or the other of succeeding on their own, basically. I think that the top level one, no matter how good the ethics get at the European Commission or whatever, are never going to be able to win legitimacy unless there's things happening in the high schools, in the in the colleges, the neighborhoods, such that people feel like they should trust um, these actions that are happening distant from their own communities. And that's the gap that wasn't breached by the left populist movements in the UK and the US. And that gap between the Floyd protests and the Bernie movement is one that I think is you know, extremely urgent. And it might, and to be honest, in the United States happen just through old fashioned organized labor movements. I mean, the unionization campaigns in high schools, in you know, fast food restaurants, at casinos, um, on university campuses, these things are really happening. It's kind of underreported, but the levels of union density in a lot of the service industry in the US is actually rising recently, um, hospitals, so I think these are places that need to be thought of as not just optional for any kind of large scale transformative project, but you know, necessary conditions for anything to survive. And I think there's this huge difference this time that people, at least here in Scandinavia, they've seen Greta Thunberg, this little girl standing mm -hmm. with a little sign and then mm -hmm. speaking to the UN and you hear the CEO of BlackRock saying we're influenced. They've seen you know, they've seen the link between protest and big power. And of course, <laughs> we're all very skeptical. That's just an alibi. But there <laughs> is a sense now that movements can be efficient. And that sense wasn't there as far as I remember it 20 years ago or, or 15 years ago. I have one last question for you. Something that I very often think, think about is, is that are we now underestimating neoliberalism once again? So now we have this we want to bring home the supply chain. We want to break down the value chains. We want to regain control of our economies. This is mm -hmm. about political rights. When we say it like that, then everybody is cheering and we want to protect the European jobs. But when it comes to the, when the consequences, you can't get va vaccines from China. You can't mm -hmm. get vaccine from Russia. You have to pay a little bit more for your mobile phones. You have to pay more for your, for your TV set. I mean, are mm -hmm. we underestimating the goods that neoliberalist globalization brought about for working people as consumers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a very fair question. I mean, I think that it's worthwhile. This is one of the reasons why I advocate reading neoliberals in their own words is, you know, how do they understand what they're doing? How do they describe it to themselves when they're not talking about the galaxies and the neurons, right? I mean, they talk, they say that the good thing about markets is they break up entrenched um, patron client networks and forms of kind of inefficient um, corruption, basically, that might exist between, you know, ex-capitalist and ex-government official who just hand off money and then they get the license to build such and such a thing. And this is the way much of the kind of the global South did operate through the 50s and 60s and 70s. And whether or not the structural adjustment programs actually made things tangibly better is another question. But open markets and free trade is a way to break up entrenched power structures, theoretically. 
when you turn the economic machine back in on itself and you say we now are back in the business of supporting local industry, finding national champions and so on, I mean, you are also creating the opportunity for an unprecedented new level of crony capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the UK is now moving, people who are smart observers on the left, I'm thinking of people like James Meadway or Grace Blakely, from their point of view, they look at the UK and they're like, it's not really helpful to think of it as neoliberalism any, anymore, but that doesn't mean it's any better. It's <laughs> just a new form of like state corporate um, collusion that is still about using public funds and redirecting them towards privileged classes. It's just operating more in national terms rather than globally oriented terms. So that's absolutely a problem. I think it would be, I, I would hesitate to describe that as just a reinvention of neoliberalism because I think it's actually something qualitatively different. Hmm. But it's certainly true that, you know, the death of neoliberalism, should it die, will also come with associated costs. And some of those will be very material costs, you know, the, the price of, of microchips and big screen TVs that people will inevitably lose in some superficial way as consumers, as these kind of um, long supply chains get broken up, whether or not they'll gain as workers or gain as citizens is something that will rely very much on policymakers um, to redirect the kind of uh, the re-territorialization for strategies that are happening and also to redirect the money that's being created by central banks. Because as long as we just have policies of quantitative easing forever and ever, and money creation forever and ever with no matching fiscal policy to direct that money. We're just going to be in a world where, you know, digital images go for $6 million <laughs> each <laughs> as we've been seeing in the recent weeks and the financial system becomes simply uh, a gambling parlor for chasing the most ridiculous new fad that might be worth one day more than it was the day before. So I think that there's certainly no no guarantee that a world after neoliberalism would be one that was more socially <laughs> equitable than the one that preceded it. And unfortunately, you know, we happen to be in a world of lesser evils and we might have to just live with that. And your book definitely made it easier for us to make a good criticism of neoliberalism. It made it harder for us to make the easy criticism of neoliberalism. Sorry about I'm that. very thankful for that. And thank you very much for taking your time. Such a right. pleasure talking to you. You too, Rune. All right. Det var så min samtale med Quinn Slobodian. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med Minus Shafik, som er leder af London School of Economics. Hun er egyptisk, britisk, amerikansk forsker med et meget stort udsyn og meget store erfaringer. Hun har skrevet en ekstremt interessant bog om, hvad for en social kontrakt, der skal indgås i det 21. århundrede, hvis man vil skabe stærke, socialt retfærdige og effektive samfund. Jeg lover jer, at det bliver en interessant samtale, som vi alle sammen kan se frem til. Og så vil jeg sige, der er mange, der spørger, mig, hvordan kan vi få mere af de her globale samtaler? Hvordan kan vi komme længere med de temaer, du taler om, Rune? Og hvordan kan vi ligesom komme mere i dybden og komme større rundt på nogle større linjer? Og til det, der er svaret faktisk ret enkelt. Det behøver nemlig ikke være særlig svært. Man kan bare gå ind på information.dk-prøv-nu, og så kan man faktisk få fem ugers gratis abonnement på Dagblad Information. Så kan man prøve det, og jeg kan love, at vi kommer rigtig langt omkring i Dagblad Information. Langsomme samtaler virker overfladiske og ligegyldige i forhold til alle de store linjer, vi trækker i Dagblad Information. Jeg kan anbefale at prøve det, og jeg kan advare mod, at det kan blive stærkt vanddannende. God fornøjelse. Vi ses i næste uge.